Thank you so much. Good morning. You know, we look at our culture and we are pondering the significance and the relationship this Sunday between the sanctity of human life and the quality of human life that people struggle with on a day-to-day basis. Here's a passage of scripture that seems to connect the dots, that bridges the gap between the sanctity of human life and the quality of human life. Job, in his experience, begins to articulate, really from his heart, the challenges that he's confronted with in his own physical condition. And in the midst of this poetic expression of his pain and his anguish, he takes the reader back later in these verses to his origins, to his starting point, which I think is very wise when we pause on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday to look at the national debate and dialogue that as Christians we can't overlook the whole matter of the quality of human life, but we've got to connect it to the sanctity of human life and place it all under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to try to make that connection. We're going to try to bridge this gap so that we who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior can articulate a a sound, wise, intelligent uh, worldview in the marketplace, in the school systems, and elsewhere, in the hallways, so that people are better equipped to understand that God is the source that God is the origin of life, and God is the authority over life. So now we're picking it up on, in Job in chapter 14. We're beginning here in verse 1, down through verse 17, we find these words. Man born of women is of few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away, like a fleeting shadow he does not endure. Do you fix your eye on such a one? Will you bring him before you for judgment? Who can bring what is pure from the impure? No one. Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. So look away from him and let him alone till he has put in his time like a hired man. At least there is hope for a tree. If it's cut down, it will sprout again, and its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As waters disappear from the sea or as a riverbed becomes parched and dry, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. Men will not awake or be roused from their sleep. If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger is past. If only you would set a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call, and I'll answer you. You'll long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag, and you'll cover over my sin. So now, Job, who lived in the time period of Genesis, is allowing you and allowing me to enter into his experience of suffering. And as he allows you and he allows me to enter into his experience of suffering, you and I are going to see that he is barraging the heavens with questions. He is wrestling internally with where is God in the midst of all this. And wisely, subtly, yet surely, towards the end of this 
back and forth exchange that he seems to be in some way having with God. He points us back to the God who created him, and that's where we're headed with this study this morning as we, as we look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thanking you for being our God. We thank you for who you are. You're righteous. You're good. You're wise. When we come before you, Father, we are we're struck with your grace and your goodness. For those who, for whatever reason, women and men alike in these services, young and old alike, find themselves wrestling with the subject we're covering today. What we want to do is to lay everything before you. You are, you are the sovereign God. You are the source of life. And we praise you for that eternal life that is found when we put our faith and trust in the one who died for our sins and was raised three days later, conquering death with his life. Warm these hearts of us. Engage these minds of us. Shape these wills of us. As again, Father, we've come here in each of these services to see Jesus. Him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Elva Weir, an oncologist in Tennessee, shares this story. I was awakened from sleep by the telephone. On the other end of the line, a distraught woman told me that her son had cancer, was a patient of one of my partners, was unconscious, breathing badly, with an empty bottle of pills at his bedside. This patient had recently discovered that his cancer had metastasized to his bone. Along with his pain, he had lost control of his bowels. He could not tolerate the thought of pain and incontinence with no hope of cure. So he had decided to end his life and appeared close to succeeding. The mother did not know what to do. I convinced her to bring him to the hospital. I met them in the emergency room, and the patient was breathing badly and looked as if he were dying from the overdose. I examined the patient, checked the laboratory results, and recommended that we lavage his stomach and place him on a ventilator until the drugs left his system. Now, the mother was uncertain. The brother took charge, suggesting that the patient desired suicide and that they should honor his wishes and let him die in peace rather than bring him through to face life with cancer. They insisted on taking him home with no therapy. I worked with them for some time, and they compromised by allowing me to admit him to the hospital with only oxygen and intravenous fluid support, but no tubes and no ventilator. They consented mainly because of logistical and legal complications produced by a patient dying at home of suicide. So I admitted him, expecting him to die. But the following weekend, I was surprised to find this man's name on my list. I walked into the room to find a beaming mother and an alert patient. With the minimal support, he had survived his overdose. After another week, he was walking with his pain improved, bowels controlled, depression diminished. I realized that this man and his family, who had chosen for him the absence of life forever, were experiencing moments together of unfathomable value. Quote, 
There is no one this side of heaven who has the ability to make the correct decision regarding when our life should be extinguished. Society should err on the side of the precious nature of human life rather than the abstraction of personal choice. Unquote. Alva Weir, oncologist, Tennessee. What he has demonstrated for us here is the tremendous tension that people experience in our culture. The tension of quality of life as it relates to the sanctity of life. Our beginnings in life as it relates to this ongoing everyday challenge of making our way through this journey of life. So what I want to do with you is I want to be able with you this morning to equip ourselves to carry on a dialogue in our society. A dialogue in which we are willing to work with both the sanctity of life and the quality of life and do it in a way within the framework of a Christian worldview so that on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we're prepped and prepared for dialogue and conversation in the days, the weeks, the months, the years to come. There are three factors that I see here that you and I are going to have to work through together to fully understand how to recognize and explain the connection between sanctity of life and quality of life. Let's check them out. First, we need to recognize and explain the authority that God possesses. Look very carefully with me now at verses 1 down to verse 6. Job has got some critical questions for God. And if you ever feel intimidated by questions and are prone to seal your lips, bear in mind that God can handle the questions of humanity. Let him come. Let him come. Because Job has got some serious questions here, and God is about to deliver in due time. Now, God begins in this whole matter of establishing his authority over life, where through the lips of Job himself, Job speaks of the limitations that God sets on life. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. It begins, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. You already get a sense he's jumped into the quality of life issues that he's confronted with. Start it again. Man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away like a fleeting shadow he does not endure. Notice that word man that is found there. In the Hebrew, the word for man here is Adam. Sound familiar? Which serves as that of the first man's name. And the term connotes that man is from the ground. In other words, he is saying, I am not self-created. I am not one who brought myself into this world. There is no such thing as a self-created person. They would have to exist before they existed in order to create themselves, which is a logical inconsistency. So he starts off by acknowledging his limitations. Men of the ground, a created being. But then what he does for us poetically and emotionally is to set before us regarding the limitations that God has placed upon us three succinct phrases. Born of woman, of few days, full of trouble. Notice he says born of woman. The woman is not the source of life. 
which is a tremendous issue in the abortion debate of today. Her womb is the avenue for life, but it is not the source of life. God is the source of life. The parents are the means of life. And so what we find here in the whole abortion debate in our nation today is that ultimately it's a debate not so much about abortion as it is about authority. Who has authority over when life begins? Who has authority over whether or not that is truly life? Who has authority over when life ends? Ultimately, the issue regarding abortion is the issue of authority. Now, he starts off with his own sense of limitation, taking us back then to the experience of that first one who was created by God. So he refers to his own limitation, utilizing the word Adam, man, born of woman. The woman is the means. She's not the source. Furthermore, he says, of, of few days. He immediately senses the limitations placed upon his life. Every time you and I find that we're hungry, every time you and I find that we are tired, we are being reminded physiologically of our limitations, that something needs to sustain us, something needs to carry us. God is not hungry. God is not one who needs sleep. He is not limited. Those are two indicators on a daily basis of our limitations. Adam, limited, created by the limitless one, God himself. Born of woman, Job describes himself, of few days and full of trouble. And immediately then, he's introducing us to the problem of pain. Now, you and I are well equipped to be able to at least acknowledge the fact that people suffer in this world and that people struggle in this world. And sometimes people use the suffering slash struggle issues to be able to argue their case in the abortion debate. But Job says, I've got a legitimate basis to talk about suffering. I am confronted with my own set of limitations. Born of woman, of few days, full of trouble. And then he goes on now as if he's introducing us to what he sees over the landscape of Israel by adding, he springs up like a flower and withers. In Palestine, after the spring rains, flowers bloom in abundance and the fields glow with splendor, but they last for only a few moments and then soon fade with the hot desert winds. He's aware of this. And so now he is using nature to describe his own sense of limitation. The flower fades. So does the life of a person. Like a fleeting shadow does not endure. So after establishing God's authority over life by saying, look at the limitations God sets in verses 1 and 2, he then goes on to talk about the awareness that God possesses in verse 3 and 4. Do you fix your eye on such a one? Will you bring him before you for judgment? It's almost as if that God has Job on surveillance. And if I'm on surveillance, God, why don't you intervene? Why don't you break in? Why don't you do something about my quality of life experience? Now, one of the things you and I have got to understand is that Job's friends tend to want to reduce suffering to one singular cause and effect relationship. Job, you're suffering. Suffering is due to sin. Job, therefore, you must have sinned. 
Job, you repent of sin, and therefore God will remove your suffering. They have reduced the suffering sin matter to one simple singular formula. But in reality, if we span the scriptures, we will find at least eight different forms of suffering described in the Bible, such as instructional suffering from Proverbs 3, verse 11, where sometimes we suffer for the sake of others being able to see God at work in our lives. Or substitutionary suffering, where on the cross Jesus Christ suffered in place of you and of me. Or of empathetic suffering, such as we would find in 2 Corinthians, where Paul has found now that God has allowed Paul to go through trials so that he has a greater sensitive spirit to be able to minister to other people. I've just given you an example of three different forms of suffering. But through it all now, he's saying, God, you've got an awareness. Your eyes are open. Why don't you step in and do something if you're gracious? But we can't put God on a timer, can we? Otherwise, we're dictating to God. And we're being God over God. So he's got questions for God. And as he questions, we see the limitations that God sets in verses 1 and 2. And we see the awareness that God possesses in verse 3 and 4. And we see then, furthermore, the duration that God decrees in verses 5 and 6. Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. So look away from him and let him alone. He's put in his time like a hired man. In other words, somebody who's able to clock out at the end of the day, go home, kick back, and turn on his football game. I'd like to be like that, Job's saying, where I can punch out and not have to deal with the issues that are attacking my body for the rest of this day. Notice with me the way in which there are groupings in verses 5 and 6. Days, months, limits. Determine, decreed, set. What he's doing at this point is that he's reminding you and he is reminding me that the whole issue that we are talking about here is the issue of authority. The person that argues for abortion is looking for autonomy from God, not acknowledging the authority of God and wants to take authority over life rather than acknowledging that God is the source of life and therefore God is, has authority over life. So we look at this and we understand then that what Job is doing at this point when he uses the word Adam, he's not arguing for traditional values. He's arguing for original values. He's going back to the beginning. You ever see the relationship between evolution and abortion? Take God out of the equation of creation, and then we become self-created people, then, and we can then therefore set the moral standards for the culture. But once you are able to argue wisely for an intelligent design, therefore there's an intelligent designer, and now we reintroduce the issue of authority into the conversation that needs to be addressed even within the family units. Authority. Authority. How to address it. Diane Kopp does. She likewise is a physician. Out east. Late one night, a physician in another city sent a teenage patient to my hospital. 15-year-old Jerry knew from his symptoms that his cancer had recurred, but he didn't want to believe it. And since he and his family believed that God could heal any disease if their faith was strong enough, watch out for faith and faith movements. 
He chose to pray rather than report his suspicions to his doctor. Finally, a school teacher noted how pale he was and called his parents. A brief examination confirmed the relapse, and the doctor recommended treatment. When Jerry and his family refused treatment, the doctor argued with them about their religious beliefs. She threatened to report them to the Child Protective Services if they did not agree to come to my hospital for treatment. Things were very tense on the ward when I arrived that night to see him, and quickly I saw there was an authority issue at stake. Jerry's dad stood in front of his son's hospital room door with his arms folded across his chest. He grunted a brief greeting to me without changing his posture. What can I do to help you, I asked him. Help me, he asked incredulously. We're here because we don't have a choice. That's an authority issue. I guided him down the hallway to a friendly visiting room. Of course you have a choice, I told him. I'm not going to order any treatment you and Jerry don't want. I had no intention to ask a court to approve chemotherapy against the young man's will. Look, if you think treatment will help, we'll make a plan together. If you don't want treatment, you're free to go home. And I watched as the father crumbled into a chair. Why? As she writes... As long as authority figures argued with him over his life's theology, he was angry and defiant. But when he was given the basis for having to assume authority, he fumbled his way to the path he needed to take. Do you love Jesus, I asked? He stares at me. I lean forward. You need to do a bone marrow exam, don't you, he asked. That's the only way you'll know how advanced the cancer is, isn't it? Brilliantly, what this wise physician has done is that she has opened up a question-answer. Defiance is giving way to openness. I hand him a cup of coffee. If you and Jerry want me to, I answered, I'll do a bone marrow exam tomorrow. If you don't, if you're not planning to go through treatment, there really isn't any point to put him through the pain of the procedure. Dad invited me to go with him to talk to his son. If I pray over Jerry during the bone marrow, if he doesn't feel the pain, is that all right with you? Question. A half hour later, we had a mutually acceptable treatment plan. During the months that followed, Jerry's dad sat in his room with a Bible open to one of two verses. I will not give my glory to another. That's an authority statement. Also, you may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. But that too is an authority statement. I never persuaded that dad that medical care in the name of Christ glorifies God. Nor did he agree with me that because other Christians with great faith had died of cancer, there was a possibility for his son within the will of God. Neither did I try to persuade him. But with time, he came to understand that his argument was not with me or the medical establishment. Like Job, his argument was with God. Question. Do you fix your eye on such a one? Verse 3. Question. Will you bring him before you for judgment? Question. Who can bring what is pure from the impure? Job's got questions. But we go to the proper authority for answers. The issue of abortion is ultimately an issue of authority. Then whose life is it? Anyway. There's a second factor I want you to see here. The number two, we need to recognize and explain the hope that God provides. Look at verse 7. 
And take it with me down through, down through verse 12. Because here now, he's going to use the analogy of tree and that of water. As he wrestles with, where are you, God? In this issue of sanctity of human life, as it connects to the quality of human life. At least there is hope for a tree, he says. If it is cut down, it will sprout again. Circle that word, sprout. And its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground and its stump die in the soil. Yet at the scent of water, it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But man dies and is laid low, and he breathes his last and is no more. As water disappears from the sea or riverbed, becomes parched and dry. So man lies down, does not rise, till the heavens are no more. Men will not awake or be roused with their sleep. You almost sense now the tension within his own heart about the physical issues of which he is being confronted. Do you have family members like that? Co-workers like that? Colleagues? Classmates like that? I want you to notice with me that he says, at least there's hope for a tree. People need hope. They want to know that there is hope for tomorrow. What God has done at this point is that he has produced and provided for Job an incredible illustration, analogy from nature. Because he goes on to say, if it is cut down, this tree, it will sprout again. When a tree is cut down, sometimes a new shoot sprouts from the old stump. Stump's been waiting, so to speak, for a chance to send forth new life. It was years ago, many years ago, handling, managing a funeral, and there were family members one by one that got up at the lectern before I got up to share. And one of them said that their mother, who had passed away, had a favorite tree on their property. And astoundingly, when the tree had to be cut down, new growth began to shoot out of it. I was sitting in the front row waiting to get up to speak, and she leaned forward and she said, Pastor, my mother lives. She's been cut down. But she lives. That's what Job is saying here. He has now embraced an analogy from nature. If it is cut down, it will sprout again. And its new shoots will not fail. Because it's got a root system. And at the scent of water, in verse 9, it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But now all of a sudden, Job reverts back because you have to expect this when people are suffering. They're in an incredible, intense suffering-type debate, sometimes with God, sometimes with self, sometimes with others, and you've got to allow them sometimes to simply vent. They have to sometimes externalize their questions. Because oftentimes they know the answers. But they've got to be given freedom to pose the questions, even if they're believers. God is giving Job the freedom to pose questions. Right now, he's not even trying to correct him. He's allowing to, him to express from his suffering body the inner conflict that he's experiencing. So here he is on one hand, he's referring to that tree that sprouts, even though it's been cut down, the stump is yielding forth life. And then before you can even bat your eyes, here he is in verse 10, but a man dies, is laid low, he breathes his last and is no more. 
That's where people are at, aren't they? And they're trying to make sense out of this world that has been shaped by sin. And we've got to be able to allow them to talk, allow them to think, allow them to work through the issues, and allow them to see that God has authority over life and death. The abortionist doesn't. The father and the mother do not. Because they're not the source of life. God is. The parents are the means. The parents are not the source. The doctor is to be the protector of life. Going back to the old Hippocratic oath. Principles. But here now, what we see is that people are struggling. Is there any is there any hope? Is there any, any way out? In the book, In the, Ol the Only Problem, Muriel Spock's novel, based on the book of Job, there's this old friend who visits a Job-like person, Harvey. And in this book, Spock makes this incredible statement. Job not only had to argue the problem of suffering, but he suffered the problem of argument as well. We've got to be able to be wise enough to not only address the problem of suffering, but also realize that some people are suffering the problem of arguing. God allows Job to work this through, to process. But God is guiding him by his spirit forward. Because another one of the reasons why there is suffering in this world is what I will call evidential suffering. Satan has assumed all along in Job 1 and 2, the reason that Job trusts God is because God blesses Job. God, remove the blessings from Job. Job will no longer trust you. God lifts the blessings off of Job. Job suffers. But Job continues to trust God. And now what you find is that there is not only educational suffering, substitutionary suffering, empathetic suffering, there is also evidential suffering where sometimes God is saying to Satan in the evil realm, look, here is someone who is willing to serve the sovereign God who has authority over life and death. Even when in the eyes of humanity, this is not a life that is blessed. God times the blessings. A delay is not a denial. The blessings would still come, as Job would learn. But now there is a third factor here, that we need to recognize and explain the life that God values. In verse 13, if only you would hide me in the grave, some of our translations read, Sheol, conceal me till your anger has passed, if only you would set a time and then remember me. Here comes. Huge question. If a man dies, will he live again? How do you answer that one? Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would have died, not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. 
And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live. Even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asks of Martha. Two ingredients I want to draw out for us here. The first is this. Resurrection reveals the value of life. The same one, Jesus, who entered in this world, embryonic form, in the womb of Mary, and while in that womb would stir the spiritual response of a John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth to leap for joy in his presence. God brought Jesus into this world in the fullness of time. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Is the same God who three days later would raise the second member of the Trinity from the grave. In other words, he has authority of life over death. Here now, what you and I find is that you have drawn a connection between verse 7. If that tree's cut down, it'll sprout again. And verse 14. I will wait for my renewal, circle that word to come, because the word renewal in 14 is the same Hebrew root of which we get the idea of sprouting in verse 7. He's saying, I'm going to sprout. Cut me down. Arise again. Astounding. But there's a second value element here. Resurrection reveals the value of life. Verse 7 and 14. But notice with me also, creation reveals the value of life. Verse 15. He says, you will call and I will answer you. He is setting up a legal debate, almost as if before the supreme court of this world. And the issue is one of authority. Who has authority over life? You will call, summon me, I will answer you. And then adds this, astounding. You will long for the creature your hands have made. So let's take a look at this creature, so to speak, that the source of life is made. Look with me at just four days after fertilization. Let's start. Zygote doesn't look like a human. Scientifically, the zygote is. The zygote's growing, so must be alive. Human parents must be human. In fact, since fertilization, the zygote has possessed a predetermined sex. It's a girl in this case. And her own unique set of human DNA. And her DNA will guide her body's development over the next nine months, as well as her lifetime. Five to six weeks of gestation. Despite being only a quarter of an inch long, her nose, mouth, and ears are already taking shape. Her heart is beating about a hundred times a minute, almost twice as fast as ours, and blood is beginning to circulate through her body, and brain waves have been detectable for at least two to three weeks, you know. Seven weeks. Look at the amniotic sac, formation of the eye and the liver, chorionic sac, the placenta, the umbilical cord. Ten weeks. 
At 10 weeks, all of her major body functions are up and running, and the kidneys and intestines and brain and liver are all working, and her tiny arms and legs can already start to flex. Astoundingly, most abortions in the United States take place around this time. As a baby cries. Twelve weeks. Her muscles are beginning to bulk up. She's busily stretching, kicking. Put your hand on her tummy. Your tummy, it's likely, she'll likely wiggle in response because her reflexes are starting to develop, although you won't, you won't feel it yet. Sixteen weeks of gestation. Baby's going through a growth spurt. Soon she'll be growing locks of hair on her head, and she's already started growing toenails. Every day her heart pumps about 25 quarts of blood through her body. 18 to 20. Well, right now she is her own unique set of fingerprints, and she seems to be sucking them. Six months. Six months, a baby can now respond to external sounds by moving and increasing the pulse. Mother may notice jerking motions even if the baby, even if the baby hiccups. Six to seven months. Notice how distinct. At eight months gestation, the baby can hear, is beginning to recognize her mother's voice, her skin's pink, she's already beginning to get that cute, chunky appearance that newborns have, where you see that extra fat's important, it allows the baby to regulate her temperature. Her temperature, you see, after birth. And so he says, Job does, you will call. This is almost a legal matter now. But it's a moral matter. You will call, and I will answer you. Now do you see the connection between the legal and the moral? Original values and national values. How all this is tied together that this is potential life, not merely life, with potential, says the abortionist. The Christian argues for life with potential. The abortionist argues for potential life. You see the tension in this culture? Is it potential life or is it life with potential? Job takes us back to the beginning and original values and allows the original to shape the legal argument. And the legal argument has got to be governed by the moral argument. The moral governs the legal. Years, years ago, 10-second snippet. I was considering seriously a run for higher office out east. A group of pastors nationwide, including Governor Huckabee at that time, were communicating with one another. And he ran. Others of us stayed put. I would have gotten about 1% of the vote, to be honest with you. But here's the thing. Somebody who is arguing strongly against my positions said, you can't legislate morality. My response was, all legislation is the legislation of morality. The question is, whose morality will you legislate? You see what we got here? 
the spiritual slash moral shapes the cultural, the cultural shapes the political. But we start with first things. We recognize that if we give way on intelligent design, allow for evolutionary arguments, therefore people view themselves as self-created people and have authority over what's in the womb. But you see, we have a comprehensive understanding of how all this fits together. And when we put all this together and we understand that ultimately this is an authority issue and the one who has authority is the one who determines value, and the one who determines value is the one who has so evaluated life that here you and I find that resurrection reveals the value of life, life after death. And creation reveals the value of life, life before birth. You tie it all together, and we're not talking here potential life. We are talking here life with potential, and you bring it all together. And now you've got a Christian worldview argument to bring into the public square so that the moral shapes the legal. And all this is done for the glory of God. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we thank you, we praise you for who you are. And we realize that we are not autonomous. We are under authority. Job has introduced us to the connection between the sanctity of life and the quality of life. Job has introduced us to the importance of understanding creation to address the matter of abortion. He has introduced us to the fact that we can't simply argue for traditional values. We've got to get to original values. And that there is a law above the law. And that this is life with potential. And so, Father, we view this matter, the whole matter of the Roe v. Wade issue of 73, not as a single issue, but as a crucial issue matter in a Christian worldview context. So help us to reintroduce the idea of who you are, of the idea of you having authority, the idea that we are not self-created people. We pray that as a result, you receive the glory and the honor. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.